you'd open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 5. While you're turning there, I do want to draw your attention to something. It's, it's, a, it's a phone. This is not a way to tell you to, to turn your phones off, though you should do that. Uh, but what this is about is it's a, it's a phone that uh, I, I would think that uh, parents would be very interested in getting for their kids. I know there's a lot of pressure to give your kids a cell phone, and there's a growing concern, which there should be, about what that phone is, that it's a gateway to just all kinds of horrific things that uh, can seduce and corrupt anyone, especially our children. So on page four, there is a, uh, a note about a phone called, uh, I think it's a light phone. I don't think it's a Christian company. I don't really care about that. All I care about is this phone. This phone has no access. There's no access to social media. It does not have an internet browser, which eliminates probably 80% or more of the kinds of fears that can come with uh, getting a cell phone for your kid. Um, so if you are thinking about getting one for your kid or you're feeling the pressure to get one, which I know there's a lot of pressure, and a lot of maybe instances where, where it, it, we do want them to have phone to be able to contact us, but protect them really from what is out there in the world because there are many that are, in fact, the majority of those that are on the internet are, are targeting and finding ways to uh, confront our children with all these different things that are out there. The temptation is great, not only on their side, but, but there are those who are pursuing them. Uh, so it's just a tool. Uh, and I just think it's something that's worth looking into, uh, whether it's your kids or your grandkids, let your friends know. Uh, I heard about it really by accident, um, but I just think it's a fantastic help uh, in this way because even though they have all these various software that you can download to help you keep track of maybe what your children are, are seeing, it doesn't prevent them always from seeing it. Um, and this does that. So anyway, just wanted to point that out uh, to you. I do not get any residuals from this, so I'm not a salesman for a company, um, but I do think it's worth looking into. Anyway, let's pray. Father, as always, we are very, very grateful again, Lord, to you for the great privilege we have to gather as believers. Because, Father, we are believers because of you. You have reached out to us. You have made sure that we heard the gospel. You have given to us faith to believe and, and to exercise in you and your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that the gospel is, for the good news of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your willingness to send Christ uh, in the midst of our rebellion to save us from our sin, to take the penalty that we so rightly deserve, and to die in our place. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, that, as which is why we gather together on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to celebrate the fact that he is, is the first fruits of many to come, which is us, and that we have a hope for the future, a very real hope, that this life is not all there is, that there is so much more to come that is fantastic. And whether our life currently now is good or whether our life currently now is bad, there's a time coming that it would be better for all of us that believe. And for that, we thank you. And so, Father, we want to honor you as we have sung hymns and songs, remembering you, singing to you, singing praises to you, rehearsing the great truths of the scripture. As we have spent time together praying, confessing our sins, praying for those who are unable to be here, asking for your help as we open your word. Fathers, we give our tithes and offerings to support the work that we are striving to do as a church in 
continuing to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is spread here and throughout the world. We ask for your blessing and your wisdom as we seek to use these funds that are given in a way that honors you. And then, Father, again, as we come to the point in our service where we give all of our attention to the word. And so, Father, we ask now for your blessing on this time. The Lord, it would indeed be beneficial. So we need your help to be free from distractions and that you would help us, Father, to focus in on what the word is saying and what you are communicating to us this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you for helping us to worship you as we ought to. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. This really is a prayer that is being uttered, I believe, by Jeremiah. He continues to lament what is going on there in the city. You notice that there's an absence, again, of many things. It, it, a lot of things have been described through lamentations. There has been, a, in one sense, a great deal of rep repetition. But there's also some things that are added. Imagine living a day to day where there's no music of any kind. You hear no music. There's no radio to turn on. There's nothing that's being played. There's no time of relaxing to be able to read or enjoy music. Um, you have to, everything that you need, your necessities, things maybe you used to be able to go get for free, you don't have to pay for all of it, but you do so at your peril because someone may jump you and actually kill you because that's what the soldiers that were occupying the city were doing for fun. And yet you're still starving. You're barely getting enough to eat. And of course, they, they mentioned women being raped in all these places and there's nothing that can be done. There's no one who's going to deliver them from any of this. Jeremiah is really voicing for the people, and, he's, and there's two main petitions here. One is that God would remember the plight of his people. When we talk about God remembering, it's not that God is unaware. That's not what's going on. It's not that God doesn't see what's taking place. We, we know that he sees what is happening. In fact, Jeremiah, again, has made it clear through the book that God is the one who has sent the Babylonians there to punish them because of their sin. And there's also the, this petition that God would restore them to the blessings they had according to the covenant that God made with them. And so this chapter also comprises a confession of sin, but also there's a recognition of the abiding sovereignty of God. So what's going on here is Jeremiah is calling on the God of Israel 
to remember the calamity that had befallen his people. He wants God to consider the reproach in which they were now living. They were in a very humbled condition. And this reflected basically poorly on the Lord. Now you've seen this before. Moses talked about this in, in his prayers to God. There's other prayers of Jeremiah where the, where the idea is, is God, we are your chosen people. I'm paraphrasing. We are your chosen people. The world around knows we are your chosen people. And because this is going on, this is making you look bad because you are looking powerless like their gods. It's not a manipulative thing. I think they're real, they are speaking from their heart. Yes, he does want God to move on their behalf. Yes, he does. He wants God to honor his own name because he knows that if God moves to honor his own name, they will be delivered. So, this, so again, even though there's truth in this, and it, in a sense you could kind of say it's an angle, uh, but, it's, but it's not a manipulative thing because God knows all things. That He's pouring out his heart. And, and he... Jeremiah, at least, and Moses, I believe, is, is true for him as well, they really were jealous themselves for the name of God. They wanted the name of God to be vindicated, as well as for God's people to be delivered. So they didn't want others to conclude that God was unable because he was too weak to deliver his people. So the idea here is Jeremiah wants God to remember his people so he would act to deliver them. So look at verse 1. Three words that are used there that are important. In verse 1 it says, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. So remember, look, and see. One commentator said that this may be the, the, the most insistent prayer that's found in the Old Testament. Because he's asking for God to remember, to look, and see the reproach of his people. As I said, God is fully aware of this. But these urgent pleas are really a request that God act on behalf of his people. That's kind of what's going on. So it's like, Lord, do you see what's happening to us? Again, knowing that God sees it. But again, it's, just a, it's another way of voicing your desire for God to come and save. Do you see how much we are suffering? Do you see what's taking place? They're coming to God. He's the only one who can do anything about this. And they're desperately asking God to do so. Verses 2 through 18, basically it's a list of complaints. So it's not a list of complaints necessarily against God. God is not being demeaned here. God is not being blamed as if God is somehow doing evil. That's not what Jeremiah is doing. But the purpose of this list really is to attract the Lord's interest against so he will act. Lord, do you see this? And you list all these atrocities. And the idea is you can do something about this. We are pleading for you to, to stop this evil. We do kind of the same thing, maybe not necessarily in a prayer, but sometimes when we're talking about maybe uh, the plight of our nation, and we talk about how bad things are getting, especially when certain stories come to light. And sometimes someone will say, I, I, the Lord just needs to come. What, what, what does that mean? We want to see all this evil being stopped. We know we cannot stop it. I don't care how many more laws are passed. It doesn't matter if they double the police force or triple the police force. It doesn't matter if all of a sudden we kick everybody out of office uh, that's in our government now, which would be cause for a great party. But even if that was to be done and we get everyone that we think is moral and upright, it's not going to stop these things. Oh, there may be less of it, but it's not going to stop it. Because there needs to be a change of heart 
in the heart of men. Men are evil. We're this way naturally. And that's only going to happen when the Lord returns. And so that's kind of what we're doing when we say that. You know, we say, Lord, do you see what's going on? It's kind of like, when are you going to do something about this? You know, we're not accusing him of evil, but we, we want to see something done. And we want it to be done now. So this present generation uh, uh, that Jeremiah is living in, these Jewish people, they, they are bearing the punishment for the sins that their fathers have committed. Their fathers have long since died. But remember that they're also guilty of continuing on in the same sins. This is not, oh, we're suffering now because of our forefathers and what they've done and we're innocent. No, this, the, the lamentation throughout the entire book is making it clear that this has been ongoing sin. It's not, it's not restricted to just one generation. The sin has continued. In fact, in one sense, you can even say it's gotten worse with time. And so as a result, the suffering here is very, very great. As I've said many times before, we've seen it. It's a reminder that God does hate sin and God is going to punish sin. And that should help us to recognize how great God's mercy is. Because we are deserving of the same, if not worse. We actually deserve that. Sometimes we need to ask God to help us to understand the idea that we deserve it. Because we're convinced that others deserve it. But we're not convinced that we deserve it. It's like, well, I know I deserve to be punished for my sins a little bit. But I haven't done such and such. Okay, we, need to, we need to remove ourselves from that kind of thinking and really see our sin for what it is. And the only way that that can be done is not by greater determination on your own. It is by God continuing to change our heart so we will see sin as he sees it. And so that's one of the, one of the many things that God is doing in our life as we read the Bible, as we study, as we pray, as God changes our heart. We want the Lord to cause our heart to become much more sensitive to our sin. We're already sensitive to the sin of others. We need to become sensitive to our sin and to see it for its ugliness that's there. And again, it doesn't matter how old you are. I don't think that if you're a little kid, you know, you're eight years old, that your sin is not detestable to God. It is. And don't think that if you're in your 80s, that because there's so many sins now you can't commit, that somehow you're doing better. The little sin that we have, the cynicism that's in your heart, is still an abomination to the Lord. And we need to recognize that. The, the, the distaste that we have, maybe, again, for certain politicians, they're always fun to hate because they're easy. You know, it's low-hanging fruit. And sometimes that cynicism and hatred we have for them is, is actually very, very deep. It's very real. We, it's almost as if, or maybe it is, we want to see harm come to them. We, we want to see that because our hearts are still really far from the Lord. And so we need to really identify with what Jeremiah is doing, really grasp what he's talking about here and embrace that for ourselves and ask the Lord to help us to get to this point. God's divine judgment had truly demoralized and devastated the people. They, remember, there, remember at one point we talked about the fact that some of them had thought for a while that because they were in Jerusalem, because the temple was there, that somehow they were safe. That yeah, God was angry about sin and God was going to really swoop down and do some serious things, but he wasn't going to mess with his own temple. See, they were thinking like the pagans. They were thinking that that sacred place meant that God somehow wouldn't dare do certain things because it would either make God weak or powerless or whatever they were thinking. Well, God made sure they didn't think that anymore. 
because the temple was being destroyed. The whole city that was God's city was being destroyed. And so this, this had caused them to become just completely demoralized in every way. They're, they're now wild animals that are roaming through the city because there's so few people that are there and there's no walls to keep these things out. This place that they had thought of as being the throne of God, where throngs of people would come in, there were a lot of celebrations and the blowing of trumpets and, and feasts and all those things, all of that was gone. It was a fading memory. So their heart really was sapped of vitality. They, they, had, they didn't have any energy left. It's like they didn't want to try any longer. And they were having a hard time even being able to see without their vision being blurry because they spent so much time weeping because of all that was gone. But look at verse 19. Jeremiah prays, But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Here, I think Jeremiah is very carefully choosing his words, and, and he is, in a sense, summing up this whole book. He is reiterating this theology, which is God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all that's happening. Remember, what's happening there is not an accident of history. This is not only because certain powers have now become dominant, and it's just the normal back and forth of world powers struggling for superiority. No, this was the doing of God for a very specific reason, the reasons he had warned Israel about for a very long time. And in the end, we know that God has the right to do as he chooses, and human beings have no right to gripe at what he does. That's one of the aspects of God that is hard for everyone to grasp, but hard for not just non-believers, but even for believers to really embrace. It's kind of scary, unless you have absolute trust and know who this all-powerful person is. God has the right to do whatever he wants, and you and I do not have the right to gripe. That's a hard stance. And we're not saying that, that we're not going to be sad and affected. We're not saying any of those things. We're, we're talking about who God is and, and the proper response we ought to have. We can be sad and we can pray. and We do all these things that Jeremiah is doing. But you and I don't have a right to gripe because to gripe against God is to accuse him of doing wrong. And that's, that's tough because sometimes we're, well, we won't say it, but we're kind of convinced that something wrong is happening. And there's someone to blame. And we'll, we'll quickly blame people, which is correct, but we kind of maybe hint at what we won't say. And we have to be careful. We, we want to have a say in things. We want our opinion to matter to God. And God is never wrong. His intelligence is perfect. His logic is impeccable. And his sovereignty is absolute. We are created beings. That's why we speak of submitting to God. Because that's the only right and proper response that we are to have to God. It is not dehumanizing to submit to God. It's dehumanizing 
to submit to a human master as if you're their slave. That's dehumanizing. But God is the proper authority. Loving, kind, gracious, and all the rest. Everything we have truly does come from him. In fact, remember, he doesn't charge us. None of us have received a bill from God for every breath we've taken of his oxygen. He's never done that. God has never sent us a bill because he sends rain at the appropriate time so the crops can grow so that we can eat. We don't get that. God gives these things to us graciously and kindly because of who he is. When you read through the book of Job, Job realized that he must accept who God is without criticism. And so the writer of Lamentations is bowing before the throne of God and he is accepting the implications of God's sovereignty. So when you read verse 20, when he says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? So in view of God's sovereignty, He's having a hard time really understanding why the Lord is waiting so long. But again, he's not throwing out an accusation. It's not what he's doing. But he is asking the question because he knows that God can and is going to restore them. He's convinced of that. He thinks it's time. He's pointing this out to God. But doing so really, I believe, in a humble way. God, why is God waiting so long to show his people mercy and restore them? It seems as though he had forgotten all about them. One commentator from Dallas Seminary, Ronald Allen, says the theological message of Lamentations really may be summarized this way. God's angry disciplinary judgment of his people, while severe and deserved, was not final. We know that as believers, right? As believers, we know that in our life, no matter how bad things get, we know Heaven awaits us. That's a very real thing. You know, that's not just where we're just trying to be positive thinkers so we can get through something. It's, it's a reality. We think that when we have, when ourselves or a loved one is severely ill, or maybe they're older and they're facing death, there is, no matter how sad we are, a level of comfort that we experience because we know, whether it's in the back of our mind or in the forefront of our mind, that God is merciful and that his mercies continue for the believer. And that there is, there really is death, there really is life after death. And for the believer, it is a life of bliss, a life that is wonderful, a life with our Savior. We're not like those who are believing that a UFO is going to come pick us up. There is evidence for what we believe in and believe to be true. So when we read through the book of Lamentations, it is ending with this prayer. It is a fitting end. It is the correct posture in light of all the circumstances that Jeremiah has described. What else would you and I expect them to do? They don't have the energy or the resources to gather an army. They truly are helpless. We pray to survive. We pray when we are suffering. We pray when we are sorrowful. We pray when we are searching for God. We pray. Prayer is not just a spiritual discipline for the sake of being a spiritual discipline. It is not like it is where someone may go to India to study Hinduism so you can learn how to look within yourself to find peace. There's no peace inside of yourself. This is not some kind of a spiritual thing, again, just to get you through a tough moment. We are actually speaking with the creator of the universe, and we are communicating with him, and he does, and communicate with us. 
and, and he does move on our behalf. We believe in a God who does daily interject himself into the affairs of men. God's sovereign rule is not passive. We see it, we can understand it, really through the eyes of faith. Meaning, because we understand who he is and what the Bible says, I now understand what is the force moving behind what is happening. So I'm, I am seeing it through the eyes of faith, trusting what the Bible says. And so this is the only appropriate way that we can end this book. The only appropriate way we can deal with the issues that we are dealing with ourselves and going through. But I want us, with all this in mind, to think about one more thing, and that's this. It's bound up in the word regret. We would probably think that because of the many who are suffering here in Jerusalem, the ones obviously who were alive, that they would have had many regrets. They regretted that they had worshipped idols. They regretted that they didn't take the commands of God seriously. They regretted that they did not heed the many, many warnings that God sent their way. Sometimes regret can be dealt with in a very cavalier way. We know God's grace is real, so we have to move on. We just bury our regret. We try not to think about it. Besides, there's nothing we can do about the past. We can't change it. So we move on. In the late 80s, when I was serving as a chaplain at the Correctional Center on the island of Oahu, I had a weekly, uh, I had seven different Bible studies, but I did have a, a very large one that gathered on Tuesday nights. And there's, it was always, they had to keep the number under 160. So it was about 150, 155 inmates. And as I was teaching through uh, the passages, one particular night, I asked them a question. And the question was this. Of those that were present, obviously, how many of those men had ever seen either their father or maybe an uncle hit or shove or kick their wife or girlfriend? And how many of them had themselves hit, punched, shoved or kicked a girlfriend or a wife at least twice. 150 some men raised their hand. There's only two guys that didn't. That was unbelievable. I didn't ask who was guilty of them themselves or they had just witnessed it, but nonetheless, that was what they had experienced. Then I threw a curveball out on purpose. And I said, and I, now, I said, guys, I want you to understand. I said, you and I both know that sometimes a woman's going to be put in her place, right? And they shook their head, yes. And I said, sometimes they're asking for it. And they shook their head, yes. And then I said, and I did say this. I said, you guys are vile scum. And they, they looked at me and I said, I can't believe how you guys have been affected by society and maybe by the devil himself. And then we started to go back to the scripture. Now I also asked later, how many of them regretted what they had done? And a majority of them, maybe all of them raised their hands. I think even the two that didn't raise their hands the first time raised their hands. But here's the thing. What is the value of regret if there's just regret? It's meaningless. It's like being sorry and doing nothing about it. Because what I know about abuse in those cases, and I talk to the men about that, and it's a very common, there's this cycle that happens in families. 
for whatever the reason, and it's normally men, they get angry at their circumstances, whatever it happens to be, and they take it out on their wife or girlfriend. Maybe something escalates it, and so they hit them or whatever, and then they feel regret. They, they feel really bad about what they've done. And so they may, so the, the next thing you know, they're, they're buying flowers, and they're, or they're washing the dishes, and they're playing with the kids, and they're treating the wife being gentle, and suddenly they're super polite, and this goes on for days and weeks and months. And the cycle begins. They start to get irritated. Whatever it is that's going on in life, they're not handling life well. They're not handling stress well. And so pretty soon, you know, they just keep going on that circle. They hit, then they're nice and kind, and then pretty soon that event is the past, and then, the, then they begin to, the stress builds and begins to build, and there's another point, and then boom, it happens again. In some cases, it may be a year. In other cases, it may be a few months. In many cases, not all, if this continues, that circle gets tighter, shrinks. The, the, the moment when they hit, push, shove, kick, the next one comes a little sooner. Whether it's a few weeks sooner, a few months sooner, but becomes a way of life. But they have regrets. And too often that's how we approach it. We're no different. It's, it's, it's a human condition. We have these regrets. And we sometimes at least want to think that because we have regrets, A, we're really sorry and somehow it counts for something. That somehow that means that we should be given some kind of credit because we have these regrets. Well, remember the story in Luke chapter 18. We're not going to read it because we're just going to refer to it. But Luke 18 is what we call the story of the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus basically says, keep the law. He responds and he's done that. In fact, he loves the law. But he also loves money more than people. And so Jesus puts his finger right on that. And so he asked that man for absolute obedience. And what does the young man do? He has regret, but he walks away. He's sad, but he walks away. Eight, uh, Luke 18, 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was very rich. He had a heart full of regret. The regret... I'm sure it was real. It was useless. Then when you get to chapter 19 of Luke, there's another story of a man who's rich. We know the story. His name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus regretted as well being a thief. But you see, he leveraged the regret to gain repentance. He restored what he had stolen. In fact, to the point that Jesus said in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. You see, salvation was not evidenced by regret. Salvation is evidenced by repentance. We do need to embrace grace. Wallowing in self-pity is not an option. The effectiveness of a believer is not marked by how little he sins, but by how quickly he repents. Our position is not mindless self-denial, but to leverage regret for the glory of repentance. Regret is powerful. The power of regret combined with the emotion of grief is like a knife. And I came across this illustration that I thought was wonderful when, it, when the, the author mentioned this. He says, if you're tied up, you can use the knife to hurt yourself or to cut yourself free. Repentance is using the knife of regret to cut the ropes. Repentance leaves regret and it moves to freedom. Regret can be a pathway to freedom. 
Remorse coddles regret in self-inflicting wounds. Repentance liberates. Remorse wounds. Regret for some is a dead end. For others, regret is the on-ramp to the road of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so for some of us here today, the message of Lamentations at least may in part be this. We've been forgiven of our sin, we've embraced the grace of God, and as we confess our sins and as we seek to grow as believers, you may experience regret as you become aware of maybe some more things in your life you need to get over. But if you're only experiencing regret, it is useless. It is a ploy of the devil to get you to do nothing. And you will have regret today, and you may have regret next month. Imagine how horrible it can be that six years later, six years from today, you still regret the same things. I've known of individual, I've known several men who have told me that they regretted hitting their wife or their girlfriend. And 10 years later, that girlfriend and wife is gone. They have no association with their children, and they still regret it. Same person. No different. What a waste. How foolish for you and I to somehow think that because we have more regret, that that's the work of God in our life convicting us of sin. It may be the beginning of the work of God in your life for the conviction of sin. But where in the Bible does it say, live your life for the Lord and be sure that you, da- you have daily regrets that you carry with you? No. It's the idea of repenting. And what we know about repenting is it is a turning away from sin. Yes, we know we may mess up and do it again. But if nothing else, one of the aspects of the Christian life should be that you and I sin less often. And these regrets are less, they occur less often. We need to move beyond regrets. Christ is the only one, in the same way that that the children of Israel were surrounded by the armies of, of Babylon, and Babylon had moved in, and there was nothing they could do. You do not have the strength to overcome your sin. We don't. In the same way we did not have the strength or the wherewithal to forgive us of our own sin, we certainly couldn't pay our own debt and live, we do not have the power to overcome our sin. Whether your sin is disobeying your parents, or maybe your sin is lying at work, or lying to each other, or whatever, or just entertaining wrong thoughts, whatever it may be. God wants you and I to move beyond regrets. He wants you and I to experience the joy of our salvation. Back to one of the reasons why we confess our sins together is to remind us of the seriousness of our sins, to bring our mind's attention to that, to remind ourselves that, yes, I, I need to work on these things. Yes, I feel bad, I feel regret, but I, I want you to be delivered from that. And being delivered from regret does not mean you forget what you've done. It means you repent. And then you are, you, you are free from that. And when you're free from the sin, then you'll be free from the regrets. It'll take a different, a different position in your life. And so I urge you as believers to examine yourselves, as Jeremiah says in this letter, examine yourself. And confess your sin and repent and turn again to Christ. For those of you who don't know Christ, the message is for you the same, except you are unsaved. And if you die in your sins, you will be condemned to hell for all of eternity. 
And like heaven, hell is a real place, and people really do go there. And there is no other way to escape. And you, you, there is no way for you to make up for your regrets or your sins in any way, shape, or form. You, if you even take communion, that will not do that. It requires faith in Christ. And so I would urge you to confess your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive you and to save you from your sin. And he will do that. He will. And he will transform your life. And then you'll begin to be set on the road to freedom, to move away from the regrets that you have from all the things you've done in the past and move toward the joy that belongs to Christ and belongs to other believers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much, Lord, for this really incredible book, the book of Lamentations. Who thought, Lord, that the book of Lamentations would actually be a book that could set us on the path to great joy? And yet, Lord, it is there. We thank you, Lord, for all that we've learned, and we pray that you would remind us often, perhaps that we should reread Lamentations with new eyes, and look and see your sovereign hand, and see again the prayers of Jeremiah, and the one who's being turned to, which is you. And that, Father, we would turn to Christ daily as believers. And as always, Father, we pray for those who may not know Christ. How we pray, Lord, that in your graciousness and kindness, you would cause them to feel the heaviness of their sin. Lord, that they would recognize the seriousness of their separation from you. And they would turn to you, seeking your forgiveness. Father, you are a good and gracious God, and for that we thank you. Bless us now, Lord, for we are needy in every way, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.